A provocative lineup of stories for your consideration this evening. We start off with a couple of late breaking headlines, one of which you heard at the top of the hour news there that we're going to get into here regarding an attempt by House Republicans to impeach Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. You know, it's you know, impeachment has been something that a lot of people have been longing for there in Washington, D.C., but I don't think this is what they had in mind. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com, and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows. Catch our interview we did yesterday with Democratic Senate candidate Richard Painter, if you missed it, by doing a search for closing argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up. You can also join us with your live and local reaction to today's news. 651-989-5855 is the number to do so. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. So let's dive right into it tonight, shall we? From the Star Tribune, a group of 11 House Republicans has introduced articles of impeachment against Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who oversees Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russia election interference and President Donald Trump's 2016 campaign. The Republicans who introduced the resolution have criticized Rosenstein for not being responsive enough as they have requested documents related to the Russia investigation and a closed investigation into Democrat Hillary Clinton's emails. It is unclear whether there will be enough support in the party to pass it, as Republican leaders have not signed off onto the effort. The articles were introduced by North Carolina Representative Mark Meadows and Ohio Representative Jim Jordan, frequent critics of the Justice Department. The introduction does not trigger an immediate vote, but Meadows and Jordan could make procedural moves on the House floor that could force a vote late this week or when the House returns from its upcoming five-week recess in September. The House is scheduled to leave for that recess Thursday, tomorrow. The move came about two hours after GOP lawmakers met with Justice Department officials who have been working to provide documents to several congressional committees about decisions made during the 2016 presidential campaign. The department has provided lawmakers with more than 800,000 documents, but Meadows said after the meeting that there was still frustration with how justice has handled the oversight requests. Republican leaders, however, have said in recent weeks that they are satisfied with the Justice Department's progress. House Oversight and Government Reform Chairman Trey Gowdy said after the meeting that he was pleased with the department's efforts and wouldn't support Rosenstein's impeachment. House Speaker Paul Ryan has also said he is satisfied with progress on the document production. So there you go. And of course, Democrats called this uh, just more pressure from Republicans to try to undermine the Robert Mueller investigation. So there it is. And it's a, it's a developing story. We'll see where it goes from here. A very aggressive move on behalf of uh, these two congressmen to impeach Rod Rosenstein and to, to put, to put pressure you know, to fight fire with fire, basically. Right. Cause that's the, the end goal of all this investigation 
is to undermine the president and to impeach the president. So they're cutting them off at the pass and uh, redirecting impeachment efforts back at their source. So we'll see what comes of that much, uh, much hubbub to be sure. Is, is that the goal, though? Because I feel like, I mean, maybe you're right in that they've been critical of the Justice Department, so therefore they would be critical of the investigation. But it could be, too, that Trump sees it as a hostile move since Rosenstein is technically still his guy. Somehow I doubt that. I seriously doubt that Donald Trump is him and Han and, and uh, you know, that he's restless because these guys are looking to impeach Rod Rosenstein. He's no fan of Rod Rosenstein. He probably wishes he could fire Rod Rosenstein. I, I've never, I've, I've seen nothing to indicate that their relationship is friendly. What, what the, the only reason why Rod Rosenstein still has a job, in my opinion, is because of the lesson that Trump learned. And yes, he does learn them from time to time. Every once in a while, it sure does take a whole lot, but he does learn lessons. The lesson he learned in firing James Comey, the arguably, and I think there's a very solid case to be made, though, the reason why we find ourselves in the mess that we're currently in with all these investigations is specifically like if you trace it back far enough, it's because Donald Trump fired James Comey. If Trump had never fired Comey, then Rosenstein wouldn't have been in a position or wouldn't have had the impetus to launch the special counsel headed up by Robert Mueller. And we wouldn't see ourselves in the situation that we're in now. So, you know, and, and Trump's Trump was very explicit about what his motivation was in firing Comey, which was, I don't like all this Russia talk. I don't think this guy's doing enough to shut it down. He's, he, he knows things that exonerate me and he's not saying them publicly and it was very much a, he's not on my team, he's not on my side, he's not doing his job as I see it, so he's fired. Because that's how he works, coming out of his business background. And you know he wants to do the same thing to Rod Rosenstein, and so I'm sure that he welcomes this. Hopefully the White House is smart enough not to say that, but and hopefully he's smart enough not to tweet it, but who knows. Maybe we'll wake up tomorrow morning or later this, night, this evening and uh, see a, a Trump tweet to that effect. The other news that caught my eye just as I was walking in the door here tonight, also from the Star Tribune, a CNN correspondent said she was barred from attending an open press event at the White House on Wednesday because of questions she asked President Donald Trump earlier in the day. Caitlin Collins and her employer, CNN, said the White House denied Collins access to Trump's Rose Garden event with the European Commission president because officials found her earlier questions inappropriate. Collins had served as a representative of the television networks during an earlier pool spray in the Oval Office. She and a handful of other reporters peppered the president with questions, including many focused on his former lawyer, Michael Cohen. We're going to get into that story here shortly. CNN on Tuesday obtained and aired a secret audio recording that captured Trump and Cohen discussing a potentially a potential payment to a former Playboy model who claimed she had an affair with Trump. It is standard protocol for reporters to ask the president questions at such events, and Trump, unlike some of his predecessors, often engages. Collins says she was later reprimanded by Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Communications Chief Bill Shine and told she could not attend the Rose Garden event, which was open to all other members of the credentialed media. CNN, in a statement, objected to the move, calling it retaliatory in nature and not indicative of an open and free press. 
Just because the White House is uncomfortable with a question regarding the news of the day doesn't mean the question isn't relevant and shouldn't be asked, the network said. The White House Correspondents Association also issued a harshly worded statement condoning the White House's misguided and inappropriate decision, these are their words, to bar one of our members from an open press event after she asked questions they did not like. Now, I I know, like, politically, this is, uh, this is nothing but a win for Trump. Because it's not as though the people who are upset by this move by the White House are going to be more upset over it or that there's some because there is no other notch right like they're at maximum outrage there there's no further notch you can go short of actual violence in terms of how much trump ticks you off so there's nothing to lose in that regard and as far as you know trying to make people think better of him there's no chance of that happening because you know nothing he does is going to have any positive effect on the people who don't like him and so from his, and from his supporters, they just eat this up. The, the notion of, oh, we're going to kick out a reporter who is out of line. The, the, the fake news meme has resonated so deeply that the, the perception amongst many, and I think with a large degree of merit, is that the media is the enemy. That, you know, when, when, when Donald Trump called the media the enemy, a, a lot of folks, reacted very negatively to that. I did not like it. I don't like this, by the way. Like I'm, My analysis here of the political effect is not a endorsement of it. See, I think the White House's decision makes us less well-off because they've restricted our access to information. Right. And they've... Uh, they've made us less informed of the issues. Like, we have the right to discern the information regardless if it's from cnn or from russia correct or from fox news or from msnbc correct yeah the 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 free press argument is a valid point it's absolutely a valid point and cnn is has the moral high ground in this but politically i understand why they did it and it's a win for trump you're not taking my bait walter huh no i'm not no facebook what about it you said that because Facebook restricts ads from Russians, we are less informed or we have right. less access to information. And so it doesn't the I, same argument apply. Yeah, it does. Okay. And in, in both cases, I don't think it's a good policy. So that I, whatever, whatever. Well, good. Then I'm glad you're consistent. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's, that's the situation here is in both cases, I don't think it's a good policy, but analyzing it from a political perspective, I totally understand why they did it. And, and this is something that this is a trick that I've learned over the past couple of years. And it's taken me a very long time to catch on to how to analyze Trump and how to analyze this White House. You have to detach your, your valuation, your value judgment of what he does and what the White House doesn't says from your political evaluation of why they're doing it and whether or not it's politically effective or politically a, a smart strategic move. And there are, are many instances where this White House has taken actions or put out statements that I would not condone, but strategically make a whole lot of sense and, and have, in terms of being in tune with, being in touch with, where Trump's support is at and why Trump continues to have the support that he does. All right. 
One more piece we'll, I want to get to here before we go to our first break of the evening, and that, of course, is the larger story about this Michael Cohen tape that came out. And this was something that broke while we were on the air last night, but we didn't catch it until we went off. The sudden public airing of Donald Trump talking about pl- paying for a Playboy model's silence marks a turning point in the legal game of cat and mouse between the president and the lawyer who once promised to take a bullet for Trump, but now seems to s- out to save himself. The feud between Trump and his one-time loyal fixer, Michael Cohen, escalated when an audio recording of their 2016 pre-election conversation was released Tuesday by Cohen, prompting Trump to tweet Wednesday, what kind of a lawyer would tape a client? So sad. As the two sides battled over the exact meaning of the sometimes garbled words on the recording, it was clear that the tape could be just an opening volley. At least a dozen more recordings were seized from Cohen's office, as well as hundreds of thousands of documents. The tape, made just weeks before the 2016 election, appears to undermine Trump's contention that he was not aware of a payment to former Playboy playmate Karen McDougal, who has alleged she had an affair with the married future president. That raises questions about possible campaign finance violations. It shows Cohen advising Trump on campaign matters, and that could be of interest to investigators looking into whether the lawyer violated election laws by orchestrating hush money payouts. Cohen says on the tape he's already spoken with the Trump Organization's finance chief, Alan Weiselberg, on how to set the whole thing up. Quote unquote, Weiselberg's involvement has led to speculation about whether Trump's private businesses tried to protect his campaign. Trump's lawyers say the payments were never made. Now, the, the interesting part of this story for me comes later in the article where they talk about where they focus in on the really astounding and you don't even catch it when you first consider the story or when you first consider the headline but the astounding fact that donald trump's personal lawyer and somebody who i imagine he considered a personal friend was video or was taping was keeping audio recordings of private conversations with his client that is not normal that is strange. Uh, continuing at the Star Tribune, after the raid by federal prosecutors, Cohen's relationship with Trump shattered. The men have not spoken for months, and Giuliani, who's uh, one of Trump's current lawyers, has routinely lobbed grenades at the attorney. Though Cohen's move to record Trump was unorthodox, it likely was not illegal. In New York, only one party has to give consent to a conversation being recorded. Stephen Lubit, a Nor- Northwestern University expert on legal ethics, said he was unaware of any rule in New York that explicitly bars a lawyer from recording a client without consent. But other rules, such as ones requiring lawyers and clients to have full and open communication and barring them from engaging in fraud, dishonesty, or misrepresentation, could possibly be construed as requiring an attorney to obtain consent. Rule or not, it's certainly an unorthodox practice that could leave lawyers subject to a bar complaint. Trump has a legitimate complaint, and it's fair for him to ask what kind of lawyer would secretly record a client, Lubit said. The nature of the attorney-client relationship itself would dictate that a client's consent would be needed for taping, Lubit said. And that is absolutely correct. Like, this, this is a very risky move by Cohen. For him to, to disclose not just not the content of these recordings, but the fact that he made them exposes him to what will no doubt be pushback from Donald Trump because as as when when you take on somebody as a client as an attorney you're f- 
first responsibility is to represent their interests. How is it in their interest to make audio recordings without their consent that can later be used against them, including by you? I mean, I think that Cohen did it to protect himself to that in that he Trump there was an idea that Trump wanted to make the payments or understood the idea that something should be done about the problem and Cohen made the recording to say hey we talked about this but he didn't foresee this 2018 situation playing out well apparently according to this there were multiple recordings which and they don't say how many they I think they do say dozens and that begs the question, was this just routine? Was this something that Cohen was doing all the time? I honestly, knowing the personality of Donald Trump and the fact that he can say one thing the next one hour and say the ne- another thing complete opposite the next hour, like, I don't blame him. Well, there you go. Let's see what you have to say. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. We talked last week about an incident up in Mora, Minnesota, where a couple of women were breastfeeding without covering themselves up at a public pool, and they were confronted by another pool goer, another member of the public, female, who didn't make any headway in her request to get the women to cover up and proceed decently. And so she went to the staff, and the staff ended up getting security involved, and I think law enforcement ended up getting involved as well, and it became this big to-do that ended up making it into the paper, uh, all under the the auspices of some sort of you know righteous demonstration for the the alleged right of women to indecently expose themselves in public, and it raises it raised this question that we discussed at length with. Uh, a caller or two over whose opinions and whose emotions are most important in a given context. And there is an answer to this question. It's a really clear, obvious answer. And that's who owns the property involved, right? Like that's, that's it. In this case, it's a public pool. And as public property, the rules of conduct for that venue are controlled through public policy. They're controlled through the rules that have been set through the mechanism that's been established in order to set those rules. And if the rules say you have to be covered up, then those are the rules. That's it. And if you don't abide by them, then you don't get to make use of that facility. It's very easy, very clear cut, very fair. Applies equally to all persons, right? A man can't decide that, you know, he doesn't want to walk to the bathroom, so he's just going to whip it out here and, and uh, relieve himself in a bush next to the pool in front of all the kids. Like It's fair game, right? Doesn't matter what bodily function we're talking about. And you know, the because the left has an aversion to acknowledging property rights, they don't really like the idea of property because, you know, property... You, the, and this, this could get us down a whole other rabbit hole. To cut to the chase, the reason why they don't like property is because property is a product of productivity. And productivity is inherently unequal because, as it turns out, not everybody's equally productive. And that you can't have a world where everyone is equally productive because people have different talents, they have different abilities, they live in different contexts, 
they have different aspirations and motivations and different choices, different behaviors that they engage in. And all of these variables add up to varying degrees of productivity, which results in varying degrees of value created. And then depending on how they choose to expend what they've earned, varying degrees of value saved and therefore varying degrees of property. And so the left hates the concept of private property, hates the concept of property generally because you can't, you can't consider property issues and property rights without acknowledging the underlying reality that property is a, is the frozen form of life, as Ayn Rand put it. Your property really is the frozen physical tangible form of your life expended. It is a, it's a physical representation of the past what you have done in the past in order to obtain it. So anyway, that little aside, we, we have another example here, and we'll get to it after the break, of a protest in Sweden which took place when a gal who, in true social justice warrior fashion, decided that her emotions and her political and social agenda was more important than the rights of everybody else around her. And it reminds me, it's very similar to this Mora pool situation in the sense that in, in both cases, you have people who are imposing themselves on literally everyone else around them. And they're, they're declaring without any sense of irony, without any sense of shame, and without any, any apology that what they think and how they feel is more important than Everybody else in the room, nobody else gets to have an opinion because theirs is so important, not because uh, they've earned it, right? Not because they're in a place where they have the right to make the rules, but because of the righteousness of their beliefs. They're so important that it overrides the actual rights of everybody else proximate to them. Again, an example of the culture of conquest that we talk about here on the program when it comes to the left. Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 11.30, 103.5 FM. Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson. Catch us streaming TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights, live and local this evening for you. You can join the conversation, 651-989-5855, if you feel so inclined. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. From The Guardian. A lone student activist on board a plane at Gothenburg Airport has prevented the deportation of an Afghan Afghan asylum seeker from Sweden by refusing to sit down until the man was removed from the flight. Her successful protest, footage of which spread rapidly across the internet, shines a spotlight on domestic opposition to Sweden's tough asylum regime at a time when immigration and asylum are topping the agenda of a general election campaign in which the far right is polling strongly. I hope that people start questioning how their country treats refugees Eileen Urson, 21, told The Guardian in an interview, we need to start seeing the people whose lives our immigration policies are destroying. 
The social work student at Gothenburg University bought a ticket for the flight from Gothenburg to Turkey on Monday morning after she and other asylum activists found out that a young Afghan was due to be deported on it. So in other words, this was a premeditated intentional disruption of the air traffic system. You know, you might call that a crime, (laughs) a conspiracy to disrupt travel. I'm pretty sure, and I don't know what the laws are like in Sweden, but I'm pretty sure if you pulled this in America and there was a, a prosecutor so inclined, he'd be able to come up with a charge or two to file against you for this type of behavior. In fact, the uh, student that they were trying to intercept or trying to intervene on behalf was not on the plane, but activists discovered another Afghan man in his 50s was on board for deportation. So they didn't they didn't find the Afghan they were looking for, but they found one, so they were able to go ahead and move forward with the protest. As she entered the plane, Urson started to live stream her protest in English. The video received more than 4 million hits on Tuesday. Facing both sympathy and hostility from passengers, the footage shows Urson struggling to keep her composure. I don't want a man's life to be taken away just because you don't want to miss your flight, she says. I'm not going to sit down until the person is off the plane. Repeatedly told by a steward to stop filming, Urson says, I'm doing what I can to save a person's life. As long as a person is standing up, the pilot cannot take off. All I want to do is stop the deportation, and then I will comply with the rules here. This is all perfectly legal, and I have not committed a crime. Now, again, I am not familiar with the laws in Sweden. I'm relatively certain that if you try to pull this off in the United States, you would be guilty of a crime. Now, whether or not the authorities would see fit to arrest you and prosecute you and whether or not the airlines would have the courage of their convictions to remove you from the plane for disrupting their their entire reason for existing is another question because we increasingly live in a world where nothing makes sense and we yield to these sorts of ridiculous displays because we because we're somehow confused as to who's right in this situation right we we've somehow we've somehow yielded to or conceded the point that if your complaint has merit you get to make it wherever and however and whenever you want whether it's in the middle of a freeway or at the airport or on an airplane or in somebody else's place of business or blocking entrance to a venue like the state fair or whatever the case may be if your if your complaint it has merit to it and deserves consideration why you have the right to annex other people's mind and literally annex their property and hold them hostage until they pay attention to you because what you have to say is just so important, right? And again, linking this with the story we had last week here more locally in Mora, Minnesota, of the the two gals who I maintain, they, they went to that pool with the intention of provocation when they decided they were going to breastfeed without covering up at the Mora pool. But, you know, be that as it may, whether they intended to cause a ruckus or not, the the response or the the sense of audacity or being put out that they had of, oh, how dare you infringe upon us by telling us to cover up? Well, excuse me, ma'am. Yeah. You don't own the pool. Like, that's the whole, that's the end of the argument. In a sane world, there's no other conversation to be had past who owns this place. Is it you? No. End of story. 
you don't get to make the rules, okay? Now, you, you're free to go acquire some property. I support, as a libertarian, fully support your right to build a pool on it, right? As long as you're not violating the rights of your neighbors in doing so. And then at your pool, provided you, you have uh, screening so that you're not imposing upon your neighbors, you're not exposing yourself in front of them, you can get as naked as you want in your pool because you will own it. And if somebody else were to come onto your property and tell you that you couldn't, I would side with you and tell them, you know, where they can stick it, right? What they can go do it themselves. But this all comes back to who's in charge and, and who is in charge in a free society, in a sane society, in a rational society is determined by one question and one question only whose property, who's the owner. That's the person who makes the rules. And this gal getting on a plane in Sweden, you know, t telling the, the passengers next to her, you know, they continue her at the garden, Guardian, when an angry passenger who appears to be English tries to seize her phone, she tells him, what is more important, a life or your time? And that's the argument. This, this was the argument that was put forward when Black Lives Matter was shutting down Interstate 35W. You know, when they went out on the 35W bridge, when they tried to shut down 94, the argument was, we're trying to save poor black people from being shot in the street by cops. And that's more important than you getting to your job or getting to the hospital or getting to, you know, the movie you're trying to make or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Our concern is more important than your concern. Our thoughts are more important than your thoughts. Basically, at the end of the day, our life is more important than your life. Our values are more important than your values. And that is, that is a, there's only one word to describe that. Thuggery. That's what it is. It's thuggery. It's imposing yourself under the, the premise of might makes right upon anybody who stands in your way. There's no virtue in that. I don't care what your cause is. Let's talk to Pete in Lake City. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Uh, one thing I know is uh, when you're in an international aircraft or, or a ship, you're required. And I wouldn't see this any different in Sweden to follow the command of the captain in charge. And failure to do so would obviously cause chaos. So I'd find it hard to believe that they wouldn't have a rule to that effect. But if they don't, I'm sure after this, they will. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I I appreciate the call and I appreciate the point. I don't dispute it at all, Pete. I And again... I don't even think, like, what the law actually is, to a large degree nowadays, doesn't even matter. Because people won't enforce it, right? People are too scared. They're too scared to stand up to this thuggery. They're too scared to stand up to, you know, because, because they don't want, and, and she knows that, right? Like, that's part of the plan. She, If you watch the video, it's very clear how she postures herself and how she presents herself. That part of the plan is banking on the staff and potentially security and the other pastors banking on nobody wanting to have their image broadcast over the internet, particularly intervening. And so, because that's what you would have to do, right? Like in order to get her to stop what she's doing, you're going to have to physically intervene, apprehend her and drag her off the plane. And you know, she's going to make the biggest possible theatrical production out of that, that she possibly can and claim that she's being injured and that she's being hurt. And you know, it's, it's going to be a disaster, and nobody wants to deal with that, so they just stand by and they do nothing. And, you know, what we, what we need to decide as a culture is whether or not we're going to call that bluff, because it is a bluff. There is no legal or moral right to disrupt, to interfere, to annex, 
to push your way around, to hold up a plane from taking off, to stand in the middle of the freeway. This is not a right that anyone has ever had and that anyone rightfully can claim. And so all we need to decide as a society is that we're not going to tolerate it. And I don't think I don't understand the the lack of courage on this point because I don't I don't think you're going to find yourself as a man alone or a woman alone if you decide to be the one who says enough is enough, shut up and sit down or get off the plane. I think you'll find a lot of applause backing that sentiment. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Barbara Streisand. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We've been talking about uh, this plane protest that was put on by a student in Sweden. She it was premeditated. She knew that an Afghan was being deported on this particular plane, and so she bought tickets, she and some others who were supporting her, with the intention of going on and disrupting the flight, and they went on and they refused to sit down, and you know the regulations are such that in order for the plane to take off, everybody has to be seated, right, and buckled up and trays in their upright positions and all that jazz. And so she refused to comply with all that, and as a result, the plane couldn't take off, and she was live-streaming the whole thing on the Internet. And that's that's apparently become, like, armor now, right? Like, impenetrable armor. If you're live-streaming something, nobody can touch you, right? Because nobody wants to be that person, that guy or that gal, who's, you know, tackling the disruptor. Because from the from the perspective of that tiny little rectangle, that's the only thing that the rest of the world is seeing. You're the aggressor. Never mind the fact that that person got, came onto the plane with the premeditated intention of imposing upon literally everybody on it and keeping them from going about their business in violation of the rules at the very least and likely the law as well. We live in a culture where it's more important for somebody who says the right thing, thinks the right thoughts, thinks lefty thoughts, to be able to say it with pride than for people's rights to be upheld. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. I understand your argument, but I want to understand how far you're willing to take it, I guess. And so my question is, is, so is your argument that what they did about the segregation on the buses was wrong also? The segregation on the buses was a, a direct protest against government action. The, well, what's the difference between, so, but it was rules set. So go, so by, go, by, so go by, protest. Right, right. It was rules set by government, right? That, and a government uh, space that the, they own. The, the, the major the difference, doing that, there's right? two major differences. There's two major differences. One, the venue. The, the venue in question was, with the, with the bus protest, was was the venue in question. The whole thing was about the buses. That was the whole point, number one. Number two, they actually she, they actually had a moral argument on their side. They actually were dealing with a legitimate injustice. The idea that it's unjust for a country to set its own immigration policy and to enforce it, there is no moral authority behind well, that I'm argument. Not, I'm not arguing about, about the deal. So, so I'm so trying the, to tie all the stuff that you've been talking about from the Morris stuff to to this plane thing all together, right? And what you're saying is that that property rights are important, right? And so who owns the property Correct. Right, that 
sets the rules. Right. right? That's correct. So, so, so up in Mora, the, the city owns the property, owns right. the pool. They set the rules. We have to follow those rules. Correct. We don't like it. The correct. only way to deal with it is to go to the city council, say, hey, we don't like these rules, or mm-hmm. go to the people at the pool and say, hey, we don't like these rules. This is why we want them changed. Right. And if you can't change them, then so be it. That's the way they're going to be. Correct. So, so what's the difference between that and, and the 50s, 60s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, with the buses having been that way, and people having to go to the city council, so, the so buses, if you, uh, if you remove, if you remove, if you remove the, the moral valuation of the cause itself, right? Like if you, if you, if you proceed blind to the moral merits of the cause, there is no difference. In, okay, and, in both and cases, and that's what I'm trying to tell you is, is that that when you say that this argument is BS or that they shouldn't be making this argument, right? But that's what I'm trying to ask you is, is why is it okay for somebody to make that argument, right? Because you agree with that argument, but not somebody else to make this argument now and it's this not. time period this way. The bottom, the bottom line I is that it's not. I understand the problem with it. Okay, I understand. I understand that the police aren't taking actions that they probably should. I understand all that, okay? But I don't see the difference in the tactic. It's the same tactic. It is the same it's tactic. A different, different it is the same period. tactic. It is it, it's not it's it is the same tactic. The 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 it's civil disobedience is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And when you choose to engage in civil disobedience, you properly ought to do so with the expectation that you're going to face legal consequence for breaking the law. And that you want to talk about what the difference is between the, the 1960s and today? The difference is that back then, first of all, they did face the legal consequences for the civil disobedience that they engaged in. And also, they expected to. Today, there's this cultural expectation that you get to do whatever you want without consequence. You get to get on that plane, and you get to make a ruckus, and you ought to be able to walk out with unscathed and without facing any sort of even criticism for what you did because of the moral authority of your argument, which is particularly ridiculous when you consider the fact that this argument has no moral authority, certainly when you compare it to the the bus situation back in the 60s. And, and, and I agree with you. I think that's the argument to be making. Not that how they're going about is going it wrong. Is that the people who should be holding people accountable aren't. I think that's the argument to be making. And then if they want to do this this way, so be it. But then they have to deal with the consequences of it afterwards. Well, and, and, then, and then I'd then be with they, you. I, I agree with you. We, we're, we're kind of talking past each other. I agree with you. My problem is, is and I think you just articulated it, is that th- these the laws aren't being enforced. The rules aren't being enforced. Because well, we, live in, we live in this cultural moment where the the accepted premise is, we ought to just let people run roughshod over other people's property rights. I agree with you. And then I think it leads into to like what you've talked about before is criminal justice reform. Because nobody wants that to follow the rest of their life for the rest of their life and ruin their chances of having a job anyway. You know? I think it helps everybody. I appreciate the call, Barry. Appreciate the thoughts. I mean, I'm very surprised that law enforcement didn't make more of an effort to remove her from the plane, but Perhaps that's indication of the flimsy nature of the immigration policy. Well, not only I didn't even get to this part of the story. Not only did they not take any action to get her off the plane, they took the dude, the Afghan dude, off the plane. They met her demands. Mm-hmm. That's very surprising. That's insane. 
that's inviting more of this nonsense in the future, and you can bet they're actively planning to do it. You, you know, the, and look, I'm not saying she's a terrorist, although, again, you know, you're, you're disrupting international flight. Like, that's, that's right up there on the edge of, of terrorist action. But the, the adage of you don't negotiate with terrorists, it's not really about terrorists. It's about force. You don't, you don't negotiate at the point of a gun because once you concede that you're willing to, then everybody's going to break out the guns at the negotiating table. And that's what we're, we're seeing here with the, the widespread acceptance of progressive, and it's all progressive. This is all left wing, left wing radical socialist activism. It, it's, I, I haven't seen an example of conservatives doing this because they inherently wouldn't. It's not in their nature. You're talking about property rights respecting people. You're talking about the same people who showed up on the National Mall during the, the Glenn Beck Restoring Honor event and cleaned it. Like, did a better job of cleaning the National Mall than the, than the uh, municipal workers who are hired to do the job do. You know, they, every, everywhere we went during the Tea Party, when we for, got a permit, right, which we paid for, and then paid for security, and then paid for all the, the logistical necessities, the, the porta-potties and whatnot, in order to facilitate an event... Every time we did that, we left the venue better than we found it. That's the difference between us and them in terms of how we try to make our points and the way they try to make their points. We're respectful and courteous and law-abiding, and they are the opposite of each of those things. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, com. Protest. There was a student, a young female student over in Sweden, who premeditatedly bought a ticket on a plane for the specific purpose of staging a protest against the deportation of an Afghan man who was on that plane to be deported. And her methodology was she got on there and she refused to sit down because if you don't sit down, the plane can't move, the plane can't take off by the rules. And she wouldn't listen to the pleas of other fellow passengers, wouldn't listen to the direction of staff. And apparently was never escorted off the plane. In fact, her demands were <laughs> met. The, the Afghan individual who was in the process of being deported was in, ended up being taken off the plane. Now, I don't know if they took him off and just put him on another one and immediately deported. Would that, would, that would be hilarious if that's what happened. That, that part's not in the, uh, in the article. But, you know, they conceded to her demands, which sets a horrible precedent in my mind. And we had a caller, Barry, who for... Um, for rhetorical purposes, compared this to Rosa Parks and the bus protest that she engaged in where she refused to sit in the back of the bus back in the 1960s. And I'll tell you another way in which those two things are very, very different. Rosa Parks took a seat on a bus. That's it. That's all she did. She took a seat. Now, she took one that was in the front in defiance of the rules, 
but she didn't displace somebody else who couldn't ride that bus, right? Like, she didn't stop the bus from moving. She didn't say, you know what, in order to protest this policy, I'm going to go lay down in front of the bus and refuse to move and make sure that you can't travel. I think given the context of the day, she knows what would have happened. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's a fair point. That's a fair point. But be that as it may, the, the see, there's, uh, along with being a on the spectrum of civil disobedience, which was Barry's point, and I grant him that point, along with being on the spectrum of civil disobedience, what Rosa Parks did was also tactically and strategically sound. She, her action was laser-focused on the particular issue at stake, the particular matter under debate. What she did drew attention to the specific injustice that was in play. And it did so without inconveniencing anyone at all. The only inconvenience that she caused was annoying racists with her audacity. That was it. That was the only offense that she made. And by defying the law and defying the rules of of the bus. That was the civil disobedience component. But all things considered, a very intelligent, very strategic, very tactical use of civil disobedience in order to protest a specific injustice that, once exposed, people could see and agree, yeah, that's wrong. That's something that needs to change. That's completely different from what we're seeing here with this gal in Sweden. Do you think anybody's mind has been changed because of what she did? You think people who who were like, yeah, we should we should uh, deport Afghans from Sweden, are suddenly thinking, well, you know, after I saw this hysterical college student making a fool of herself on an airplane, live-streamed on Facebook, I've reconsidered my position on domestic policy and social policy. I mean, again, I just think that it shows how flimsy the policy is. The law enforcement isn't willing to enforce it. The people charged with doing it. And she did it in, what, two or three minutes on the plane? It didn't take a whole lot yeah. of effort. And I and it, we've gotten to a point where, yes, people can just get away with anything, but part of that is because there are so many laws. Fair enough. That's that's something we talk about frequently on the program, and yeah, the <laughs> there is a proliferation of laws that uh, are that amount to basically a culture of nonsense that we find ourselves in now. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035-FM, streaming on TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. 9 to 11 weeknights, you can find us here. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Let's go to Sam in Plymouth. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. Uh, thanks for having me on. Long-time listener, um, first-time caller. Appreciate it. So I um, I just kind of disagreed, or I guess I had some questions on your argument here. So my question hinges on the fact that this Afghan guy, he's an asylum seeker, correct? Mm-hmm. So then that means if he's returned home, he's in serious bodily harm. Possibly. So then she is inconveniencing everybody else. She should face the consequences to her action. But I don't necessarily disagree because if it's saving somebody's life or maybe alleviating the fact that he may get deported to a dangerous situation. So how do you feel about people who protest in front of abortion clinics? protest in front of abortion clinics yeah who 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 uh, stand in front of women who are on their way walking in to abort their children and yell at them about how they're sinners and how they're killing their kids and engaging in murder and flashing pictures of dismembered uh 
fetus carcasses in front of them and what have you. How do you feel about those folks? I mean, it's their right to free speech for that. I don't think that's civil disobedience as much. Well, I mean, they're they're definitely that might be. Well, and that's what I'm saying. They they're definitely violating property rights if they're doing it on the clinic's property. And you could make a case for harassment if they're up in people's face with it. And they, people people have, I guarantee you, I know for a fact, people have been arrested for engaging in that behavior. They have been arrested for protesting outside of abortion clinics. Yes, well, I guess the argument could be made that that's protecting a life, but it hinges on when you consider an unborn fetus a life. I don't think anybody sure, would disagree sure. that this well, Afghan individual is a living human being. Setting, setting as, being sent back to a dangerous situation. Setting aside that the argument over abortion, which I don't want to get into tonight, at least you're being consistent in the way that you you're applying your analysis of the situation. So I appreciate that. Thank but the the as as to what what I hear you saying is is that you sympathize with the civil disobedience on account of what you believe it's accomplishing, which is saving this guy's life. Right. And well, and I mean, that, that brings me to the question that I guess I kind of had for you is, you know, yes, there is a right to property issue that's being done here, but I don't necessarily know if this is going to be as comparable with say the Mora situation because nobody's life was being threatened with the Mora situation. This was direct danger to that individual. If he was being deported back to a safe country, then I guess my argument would also fall apart. Well, and and I I wonder how far you would extend this because the claims of Black Lives Matter when they were blocking 35W and 994 and the State Fair and what have you and going to the Mall of America and the airport, they would argue that they were saving people's lives or that their cause was in defense of innocent black lives that were being taken on the street by police. So is it the immediacy of the threat, the fact that we think that this guy's going to get off the plane in Afghanistan and be dead within 24 hours? Is, is, is it the immediacy that grants it its moral authority? I think it's that you could point out to the action being the exact root cause. Like you said, that there was effectiveness in this, right? You have to have something that actually is effective. And this was effective in getting this individual off the plane. Well, only so because the law wasn't action. enforced. I don't but necessarily know. Sorry? Only because the rules weren't enforced, but sure. Right. But And he very well, we don't know, he very well may have been put on the next plane and, and deported the same day. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I mean, policy I, has changed as a result of this. Yeah, and I mean, and then that brings me, brought me to my bigger question that maybe I wanted to get your thoughts on, where, you know, if direct civil disobedience is there to protect life immediately... Or when does property rights and somebody's right to life, and even in an immediate sense, where does that kind of vary, even with things like civil disobedience for you? I, I go back to what Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, which is that we, we should not upend the established order for light and transient causes. And you know the notion that everybody who has a grievance, everybody who has a problem with the way things are done, and the, the status quo of... Uh, the the jurisprudence in a particular jurisdiction has the the unfettered right to be able to 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 decide that their feelings are more important than everybody else's considerations uh, on any given day in any given context. I, I don't want to live in that society. I want to live in an ordered society where the, I, I can go about my day uninterrupted by somebody else's political grievance. And I don't and I don't think that's too much to ask. And I honestly don't like. And here's 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 the bottom line for me. And I appreciate the call, Sam. I very much appreciate the thoughtful uh, consideration. 
the bottom line for me is that if your cause actually has life or death merit, if your cause has merit, you don't need the theatrics. The theatrics are something that you engage in in order to attract attention that you can't attract on the merits of what your cause is. And this is the thing that bugs me more than anything else about the whole Black Lives Matter thing and progressive protests generally, is that they know they can't get traction with their arguments because their arguments are dumb. And so they turn to these disruptive and attention-seeking tactics in order to draw attention to a cause that nobody inherently cares about. Or, or at least doesn't care about to the extent that they find acceptable or desirable. It's an annexation of other people's attention. It's an annexation of other people's minds. It's a demand that you pay attention to me and my cause and my opinion and what I think. I'm not a big fan of demands. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome hey, to the program. I, I, I know we had a conversation about this already, and I, I really think that that you're coming at it from your worldview and you're trying to, to, to say that because I don't agree with this, this moral argument that they shouldn't be making that. that no, I totally they can make, it's not I a question you of... Are. I know you are, because cause what Rosa Parks did, right, it's more like Martin Luther King's tactics, okay? Nonviolent, all that fun stuff, right? What some of these people are doing... Okay, it's nonviolent. What this person did on the airplane is completely nonviolent, right? Didn't hurt nobody. Took up their time, right? It, well, yeah, see, this, that's a false that. distinction. That's a false distinction. The other argument is what the Black Panthers were doing in the 60s. It's for the same cause, for the same thing, right? But violent, okay? But you're saying that the reason why Rosa Parks, what Rosa Parks did was, was okay was because... I didn't say it was okay. What was fighting for was moral. I didn't say it was okay. I said it was effective. It's for the same thing. So it has to be moral. So what's the argument there? That's what I don't understand. And, and you're, you're trying to twist around the circles, saying, saying, well, because of what they, what they do, they try to grab attention, right? So what, what the Tea Party was trying to do wasn't, wasn't for a good cause, wasn't for anything. And how far does that go? Who paid attention to that except for people in conservative circles? Nobody. But that doesn't mean their argument wasn't right. Without I don't understand. I don't understand the, the point you're trying the, to make. I, I really, I really, truly the don't. Tactics of the left, right? And and tried to make it theatrical and got on the news. Maybe they would have got further. I'm not agreeing with what how they go about it, but I, I'm saying that you're trying to say that because of the, what they're fighting for is wrong, they shouldn't be doing it. That's uh, that's literally the opposite of what I said. And I and I, and I'm not I'm not saying that civil disobedience is something that can go without being answered. It absolutely should be answered. You should have you should face the consequences. And that's a difference, by the way. The difference between Rosa Parks and another of the differences we're we're making a list at this point between Rosa Parks and this Swedish gal is that Rosa Parks did face the consequences of her actions, and this gal did not. Well, then, well, then, then the problem isn't what they're doing. It isn't what they're fighting for. It's it's the response. To what they're doing, well, yeah. what they're fighting for, is the problem, and that's. I agree. What I agree. I I don't I don't understand where the perceived difference in in opinion is then, because that's exactly okay. what I've been saying. Okay, but but so you said you said that that because of 
what she was doing it was wrong because she had no moral authority to be doing it. Her, her, her. No, I no, I cited that you asked me what the the, the content of your no, question no, was. What's the 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 content of your question was? What's the difference? between Rosa Parks and this gal. And I listed off, as a difference, the lack of moral authority in this case. I think, I think, I, I understand what you're trying to say, but I think you're looking at the, the shortcomings of the argument that you're trying to make, because you're making it. I think the, argue, I think the argument that you're trying to make is, is that, that the left cause that they're trying to do and the way they're going about it is wrong because of their left cause. Not, and I think... Think you see it that way because of where you come from. Now, if you were under the were your mental picture of the way the world should be, okay. So if you came from their side and had their idea of the way the world should be, you would fight for their causes just as hard as you're fighting for your causes, probably in the same way they're doing it. But but you don't see it from their their opinion, and that's why people. That's why this whole fight is a fight in the first. So place. you you call me back. And you, and you tell me I told you so the minute you hear me advocating for civil disobedience in the pursuit of a conservative cause, because it has never happened. It's never once happened on this how is what How is what Rosa Parks did not a conservative cause? How is what, what the, the black guns or fight for black guns, people, black men having black guns legally, how is that not a conservative cause? And how are they not doing that? How is what... Lando Castile did by carrying a, a gun. How is that not part of he, disobedience? How, how is all of that not part of it? And, and that's what I'm not. And I, I don't. I don't advocate for any of that stuff either. If you if you legally can't should not be carrying a gun, I'm not saying you should. He did, and I never have. He was legally carrying a gun. Oh, at least that's what everybody says. Neither, well, neither here nor there. It already happened. The guy didn't get found guilty or whatever. But. But what I'm telling you is, is that it does happen. It just doesn't get reported. All right. I appreciate the call, Bear. We, we're a couple minutes past due for a break. I appreciate the call and, and the vigorous debate. We'll uh, we'll get into it later on something else, I'm sure. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We've been talking about this protest on a plane in Sweden put on by a female college student who premeditatedly planned on boarding a plane that was deporting an Afghan man back to Afghanistan. And her plan, which turned out to be very effective and successful, was to not sit down and to live stream her ongoing protest and demands that the man be taken off the plane. And that's exactly what happened. Let's talk to Gary in Rosemont. Appreciate the call. Hello, can you hear me? Yep. Hey, I just want to say, first of all, a long-time listener, first-time caller, and I always appreciate your uh, your, 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 uh, your opinions and your, your viewpoints. I think one there's there's a couple of things. One, at least on domestic flights, failure to obey the uh, you know the directives of the flight crew right. is a federal offense. Yep. And so that you know that definitely you know and I think people have been kind of you know that kind of puts a little bit of a fear of God into people, at least here in America. 
Yeah. And then the second one is, I think the protesters and some of your other callers are, are arguing from a false uh, premise that this guy that's going back to Afghanistan faces imminent harm. Right, right. I mean, he came to Sweden, you know, seeking asylum. Right. And they obviously, you know, adjudicated his his claim and Correct. decided that it didn't have merit. Correct. For for all we know, he could be you know the worst. Yeah, we don't know anything about the guy. We don't know anything about the guy. We don't know anything about his circumstances. And and in fact, the one thing we do know for sure about him is that he wasn't even the guy who they thought they were going to find on this plane. They thought they were going to find some young guy in his 20s or 30s. This guy was in his 50s, totally different guy, but they just transplanted their technique, their, their uh, <laughs> operating plan to the new guy. I guess one Afghan is as good as another when it comes to your political protest. And they're like, oh, yeah, he's going to die if we send him back. Right. And they have absolutely no no knowledge. Of, but I guess, you know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes, you know, right. as far as just, you know, the happenstance of a, another Afghan on that plane. Yeah. All right. I appreciate it. Anyway, yeah. That was just my point. I appreciate it very much. Appreciate you calling and listening. Hope you do so again, Gary. There's a story that I tripped upon uh, in, a, in a little bit of Providence here at faithwire.com. That is illustrative uh, of the, the, the point being made there as well. A Texas father has physically stopped physicians from removing his brain-injured son from life support. Jonathan Michael, a 39-year-old father from Malakoff, Texas, suffered a severe head injury after falling to the ground June 30th. He was rushed to the East Medical Center in Tyler, Texas, where doctors found that the impact had caused extensive damage to the left side of his brain. He was almost totally paralyzed down the right side of his body. The doctors told Jonathan's dad, Rin, to get hold of his wife, Karen, who happened to be on a missions trip to Africa. Medics insisted that decisions had to be made about Jonathan's long-term care. But before Karen could catch a flight home, Jonathan's estranged wife showed up and told the medical team that the 39-year-old would not want to be kept alive in his current state. If I'm ever in such a situation, Jacqueline Dalton told her husband, he... uh, had told her in the past, I want to let nature take its course. Jacqueline explained to LifeSite News that she had put the question to Jonathan himself, asking him to move his foot if he wished to have all this stuff, the light support equipment, taken off him. She was convinced at this point Jonathan moved his left foot. But Jonathan's parents vehemently disagreed with the conclusions of their son's estranged wife, with whom he had not lived for a number of years, adding that his foot spontaneously moves on a frequent basis. Ugh. Ugh. Karen posted a video of her son to Facebook, which clearly displays his high level of responsiveness. Karen told Faithwire that Jonathan's estranged wife had not lived a day in his life for the past three years, adding that she was displaying a total lack of compassion toward the entire extended family through her actions. Isn't it that it's really suspicious that an estranged wife comes charging into the hospital after three years of not being a part of a dude's life for the explicit purpose of saying, like, yeah, I, I don't think he wants to, to live in this condition. Like, that's her whole contribution. She, no, she's not, how is he doing? Not what's the prognosis? Not what's the long-term plan? Like, her first go-to thing is, let's pull the plug. Continuing, uh, f- f- for most of... Uh, a first and foremost importance is our son's life, his care, his future, not her thoughts, actions, and total lack of compassion towards his parents, sister, uh, son, aunts, uncles, and cousins. And it goes on to, to get into the story. And so this is an example of, again, now you, you could make the argument, right? 
Is this father breaking the rules of the hospital? Absolutely. Right. Could he be subject to legal prosecution for, you know, what disrupting the peace? You know, I'm, I'm sure there's some charges that that a prosecutor could apply here to his actions in defense of his uh, son who's on life support. But if you're going to make the case that's been raised by that was raised by Barry in terms of or maybe it wasn't. I don't think it was Barry. It was another caller um, that the um, the immediacy of life is something that justifies breaking the rules and engaging in an act of civil disobedience. In this case, the guy, his dad literally is standing between the people who are going to take the action that is unquestionably going to result in his son's death. As opposed to the situation with the Afghan on the plane where we have no idea what's going to happen to him when he gets off that plane. No idea whatsoever. The one thing we do know is that we're not responsible for it. We're not putting a gun to his head. We're not pulling a trigger. We're not taking an action that unquestionably is going to result in him losing his life. You know, we being the Swedes here in this case. All right. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk.com. Some news breaking this evening from the Daily Wire. A new report released on Wednesday revealed that the Obama administration knowingly provided an Islamic terrorist financing organization with hundreds of thousands of dollars, despite the fact that the group had been designated as a terrorist financing organization for a decade by the U.S. government. Obama officials approved the release of well over $100,000 even after they were informed that the Khartoum-based Islamic Relief Agency was affiliated with Osama bin Laden and the organization which would eventually become Al-Qaeda. The Islamic Relief Agency, also referred to as the Islamic African Relief Agency, received a $200,000 taxpayer-funded grant from the Obama administration which released at least $115,000 of that to the terrorist financing organization. National Review has the report. According to the U.S. Treasury, in 1997, the Islamic Islamic Relief Agency established formal cooperation with the organization that would eventually become Al-Qaeda. By 2000, it had raised $5 million for bin Laden's group. The Treasury Department notes that uh, this Islamic Relief Agency uh, officials even sought help to relocate bin Laden to secure safe harbors for him. It further reports that it raised funds in 2003 in Western Europe, specifically earmarked for Hamas suicide bombings. The 2004 designation included all of their branches, including a U.S. office called the Islamic American Relief Agency, Eventually, it became known that this American branch had illegally transferred over $1.2 million to Iraqi insurgents and other terror groups, including, reportedly, the Afghan terrorist uh, Gul Budin Hakmayar. National Review notes that in July of 2014, the U.S. Agency for International Development approved $723,405 of U.S. taxpayer funds to go to the World Vision and that out of that money, 200000 was to be directed to a sub-guarantor, which was this Islamic Relief Agency. 
World Vision had informed the, U, the USAID in 2014 that the Islamic Relief Agency was on the designated terrorist organization list and subsequently had to wait for an assessment from the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control before they could receive the money. And it goes on to give more detail on this. I, I have not seen any coverage of this anywhere else other than National Review and Daily Wire. We'll see what happens tomorrow. I won't hold my breath to see it being uh, scrolled across the banner on MSNBC or being made a big deal of on uh, NBC or CBS or you know CNN or any of the mainstream media. But you would think, you know, if if we really take seriously this notion that foreign entanglements are of such concern that they ought to occupy every conscious moment of the news cycle, this strikes me as profoundly more treasonous. If we're going to use that word, if we're going to throw that word around, profoundly more treasonous than anything that Donald Trump has done or even been accused of doing. I mean, it's not the first time the government has knowingly sponsored a terrorist organization. This is true. From Vice News, Twitter is limiting the visibility of prominent Republicans in search results, a technique known as shadow banning, in what it says is a side effect of its attempts to improve the quality of discourse on the platform. The Republican Party chair, Rana McDaniel, Several conservative Republican congressmen and Donald Trump Jr. spokesmen no longer appear in the auto-populated drop-down search box on Twitter, Vice News has learned. It's a shift that diminishes their reach on the platform, and it's the same one being deployed against prominent racists to limit their visibility. The profiles continue to appear when conducting a full search, but not in the more convenient and visible drop-down bar. The accounts appear to also populate if you already follow the person. Democrats are not being shadow banned in the same way, according to a Vice News review. McDaniel's counterpart, Democratic Party Chair Tom Perez, and liberal members of Congress, including Representatives Maxine Waters, Joe Kennedy III, Keith Ellison, and Mark Pocan, all continue to appear in drop-down search results. Not a single member of the 78-person Progressive Caucus faces the same situation in Twitter's search. The notion that social media companies would suppress certain political points of view should concern every American, McDaniel told Vice News in a statement. Twitter owes the public answers to what's really going on. Pressed or presented with screenshots of the searches, a Twitter spokesperson told Vice News, we are aware that some accounts are not automatically populating in our search box and shipping a change to address or uh, shipping to change a change to address this. Asked why only conservative Republicans appear to be affected and not liberal Democrats, the spokesperson wrote, I'd emphasize that our technology is based on account behavior, not the content of tweets. And so their response, Twitter's response to this, is that they're making the claim that it's because of how the Republicans and the conservatives are using their Twitter accounts that they're finding themselves shadow banned by the Twitter bots. I don't buy that for a second. Not one second. That is a bold, I'm going to call it out as a bold-faced lie, a malicious lie with political intent. Because you cannot tell me that Keith Ellison and Maxine Waters are out there engaging in, you know, productive, respectful, cordial conversation. That they're not engaged in trolling, Right. Like the the idea that there's something about the way conservatives behave that's totally unacceptable versus the way 
Democrats and leftists and liberals behave on Twitter, not buying it for a second. This is obviously political bias on Twitter's part. I have at least one person on Twitter that I follow that has been claimed to be shadow banned. And um, I don't know how I figured it out because he's been talking about this for like three months now. Um, and I just have another libertarian friend who is like an entrepreneur, basically. He runs a pretty legit like education type business. And he said he just got temporarily banned from Twitter because they thought he was a Russian bot. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm not claiming that I'm some part of some Twitter conspiracy or have been shadow banned. I don't, I don't know that. But I have often wondered why liberal views are so popular on Twitter and conservative views are not. Like, I, if you follow things like Trends Minneapolis, Trends St. Paul, right. every time some news breaks, the liberal view on it or right. liberal tweets are immediately trending Correct. within an hour. Yeah. And, but And it's the only time conservatives are mentioned is like the Omen reporting rule when they're doing something wrong. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I've wondered myself like, huh, like I, like maybe this is just my ego, but like, I feel like, like I say some pretty clever things sometimes that are just as good as what they're saying, but I never get any play on it. I'm like, oh, well, it's because I'm not, a liberal that's what it boils down to <laughs> yeah yeah the when when Ben Shapiro talks about this he makes the distinction between a publisher and a platform and the 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 insidious nature of what's happening with both Facebook and Twitter right now is that they presented it's it's if you could make the argument I think with a high degree of merit that they're engaged in a form of fraud I mean you want to talk about consumer protection this is a form of false advertising because they advertise themselves as open platforms that are available to connect people with those whom they want to engage with and in order to be part of a self-selected community. They, they promote themselves as being a platform, but in actuality, they have become, and maybe that's how they started, but over time, they've become intentionally publishers in the sense that they've developed editorial standards that are informed by politics. There's a story here at BuzzFeed uh, talking about the in outgoing executive there at Facebook uh, by the name of Alex Stamos. And he talks about how he thinks Facebook needs to, to take a position on moral issues and needs to get involved in the discourse. And this is something that we see them doing, right? Like, and, and Twitter feels the exact same way. All these tech people, you know, they're all on the left coast. They're all out there in California. They have an agenda. They have a political perspective. And they are making the decision in the era of Donald Trump, you know, under the, under the premise that, you know, there's, there's this existential threat from the big bad evil conservatives, the big bad evil Republicans, that the, the era of neutrality is over. That it's time to take a stand. It's time to shut conservatives down. It's time to to shadow ban them. It's time to to undercut speech itself, which is deeply insidious. And at the end of the day, a vote of no confidence in their ability to win an argument. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, the number to squeeze in a comment 
On our way out the door this evening, live and local with you at 9 to 11 weeknights, let's talk to Mike in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Good evening, Walter. Uh, Yeah, if I could just revisit uh, our conversation last night for a moment. Um, You had Richard Painter on, of course. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this all day. I, I just, if you could explain to me, how can he so specifically and deliberately uh, spell out all of the alleged things and crimes and conflicts of interest that uh, President Trump has. And then in the same breath, he says that Hillary has committed no crimes. When the top attorneys in the country say that you and me and and Brad and anybody else, we'd be in prison now. We'd already be serving... And I'm just wondering, you know, I've heard it said that liberalism is a mental disorder. <laughs> I've heard that, that too. There, there's no doubt this man is an intelligent man. He would score highly. Sure. Yeah, on, absolutely. Yeah. On an IQ test. Yeah. But why? I mean, aside from offending half of the electorate by, you know, saying that he, he appeals to this common denominator, what, what is it with these guys? Well, I mean, I think I think politics and, you know, I'm not a sociologist, but I think that the way we do politics has a way of fostering myopic worldviews where you only see what it is that you that's convenient for the side that you've decided to take. And right. For what speaking it, as a lawyer. Right. How, how do you and that's what he is. Yeah. How do you say that Hillary well, I don't, Clinton has... I don't think he's speaking as a lawyer. He's speaking as a partisan. And he's changed his partisan allegiance. And so, you know, I mean, look, the guy's running for U.S. Senate as a Democrat. He's He's got a primary. He's not going to come on the radio and say, yeah, Hillary's a criminal. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just as a practical matter, even if he were to believe that, he's not going to come on here and say it. Well, then he has no credibility, obviously, because she is a criminal. Well, there you go. I, I can't... I'm not going to argue with you on that point. So... I mean, it's it just that that's why I just I I can't get there. And I, I try to see both sides yeah. and I really do. But well, and, and to to your point, t- to me, the thing that I can't get past and, and the, the is the fact that he switched parties and the fact that he's running as a Democrat, because, mm-hmm. you know, as 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 somebody who has been, you know, I've described myself. And I, and I do so at great expense to my own reputation. I've described myself as the most prolific Never Trump voice in the state of Minnesota, certainly during the 2016 presidential campaign. And to, to my mind, you, the, the arguments have credibility when you're making them from the perspective of, hey, I'm a conservative and this is how this guy doesn't align with conservatism. When you decide, well, now I'm a Democrat, and now I'm on board with the likes of Hillary Clinton and Keith Ellison and Maxine Waters and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, like at that point, it's like, well, then why, why should we care about your opinion? You know, I, I don't understand how how you he gains moral credibility for his argument about how horrible Trump is by getting in bed with a bunch of people who are just absolutely detestable. Yeah, I mean, there's just no, there's no. Like I said, there's just no credibility. All you're doing is all, I guess, you're just throwing red meat to the derangement syndrome. Sure. That, that she didn't commit any felony. Well, and, and, you know, look in the you, you get a different feel for a person sitting across a table from him and looking him in the eye. And the, the sense that I got from him is that he sincerely believes the things that he's saying. 
the the extent to which we we detect uh, inconsistencies, <laughs> to put it lightly, in terms of you know the, where he's casting his harsh light of criticism, uh, I I really do cast it uh, or, or attribute it to a, a kind of n- newly acquired partisan myopic worldview that he has now as a Democrat. So a hammer to the BlackBerry and the bleach bit, and that that just doesn't hold no water. <laughs> I guess not. I guess not. All right, I appreciate the call, Mike. We're going to go to another Mike in Farmington. Appreciate you calling. Thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yep. Um, have you ever read the book, The Portrait of Dorian Gray? I have not. My, oh. I, I, I regret that my only exposure, my only cultural exposure to the character of Dorian Gray is the movie The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen That's with Sean Connery. That movie as well. <laughs> But uh, that comes to mind when I think what's happening, and it's quite remarkable, is the ugliness of the progressive Democrat socialist Mm -hmm. is being revealed when we see uh, people have access to so much more information that can educate themselves. And uh, I saw Mr. Shapiro on where he talked about things, uh, well, he was talking about shadowing where your speech and the things that you want to talk about are being limited by these certain social media groups. Right, the shadow banning on Twitter and Facebook, yeah. And it almost reminds me of going back uh, decades or hundreds of years where certain people didn't want other people to learn how to read and write. They wanted to keep people down right. and not have access to Wow. That's a really profound comparison. I like that, Mike. I appreciate you calling in to share that with us tonight. Yeah, there's definitely a thematic similarity there between the modern desire amongst the left to shut down speech, whether it's through, you know, public action or private action. You know, I think I think culturally there's a much more significant move in the private sphere and the corporate sphere to try to shut down speech. There's there's a there's certainly a shared sentiment between those modern actions and efforts in history by despots and tyrants to keep people illiterate, keep people misinformed, keep people from engaging with information. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.